Good morning! Today is Sunday, the 25th day of June, 2017. There once was a bear cub that was rescued from a forest fire and became a national hero. An internet contest to name a new advanced scientific ship and a CIA program that used house cats as spies. I have all three of these stories on the 129th episode of Sunday Morning Coffee with Jeff. It's Sunday, it's time for coffee, and I am your host and storyteller, Jeff Kelly. I hope everything's good wherever you are. Why don't you go get a cup of coffee ready, because I've got a few stories to tell today. So today's show is going to be a little different. I actually spent most of the week working on a totally different tale, but I'm not going to tell that tale on today's show. It was one of those situations where I, I felt I needed to find more information to complete it. It was close, but I thought it just wasn't ready. But luckily, every now and then, I write a story that's, well, too short for an episode. And I've got a collection of these, so I decided to read three of these today. Saikon's own Rebecca Ruiz from Pint Notes suggested one of these. It's the story of Smokey Bear. Becca suggested this way back in March, and I loved the idea but I also knew that there was just not enough to the story to make a full Coffee with Jeff episode. And I kept waiting on other ideas to pop up that I could pair with it or whatever, but it never happened. So today I'm presenting two other short stories along with Smokey Bear, and none of these stories have anything in common. Nothing whatsoever. Another story about a feline CIA Cold War spy... I heard about, I think, on the Horse Track Hooligans podcast years ago. Um, I'm not 100% sure of that, but I think that's where I got that from. And the last story was on the news recently, and it, it makes me smile when I think about it. And you probably already know the story, but what the heck, it's fun, so I'm going to tell it. Now, before I get started, I wanted to talk about the Blu-ray edition of one of my favorite films. That's Ron Howard's Apollo 13. What makes this edition so wonderful is that there are two commentary tracks. The first one is by Ron Howard and Brian Grazer, but the second one is by Jim Lovell and his wife Marilyn, who are still together after all these years. It's fascinating to hear them talk as they watch the film and tell you what's real and what's been fictionalized. There are some charming moments and even a few times where Marilyn seems to break down as she talks about what she went through. One of my favorite moments is at the beginning of the film when the two who are played by Tom Hanks and Kathleen Quinlan are outside their home, a bit drunk after the party they just held for the first Apollo moon landing. It's a charming and romantic scene in which Tom ends up on the same lounge patio chair as Catherine. In the commentary, Jim Lovell asks the real Marilyn, Was I ever that romantic? But she responds, I'm not going to answer that. 
I thought it was amusing. Anyway, the weather in Chicagoland is beautiful, and I've got a hot cup of coffee and three stories to tell, so let's get to it. This podcast is part of the SciCon Network. You can support this podcast and others like it by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash SciCon. That's C-S-I-C-O-N. A link can be found on the Coffee with Jeff website. Just a dollar or two is all it takes to keep these podcasts going. Thank you for your support. It wasn't only human beings who became involved with the experiments. Animals, too, were programmed to fight the Cold War. One project was codenamed Acoustic Kitty. My wife and I own a cat. Its name is Amanda. In fact, we've owned five cats in our 34 years together. And here is one thing that I am certain of. Cats will do as they wish. Cats will never follow instructions. If someone would ask me if cats could be used in the service of their country, let's say as a spy, I'd laugh and say, good luck with that. Common sense says there's no way that this is possible. Our story concerns the CIA during the Cold War, and, well, common sense didn't always factor into their plans. From around 1947 to 1991, the Soviet Union and its satellite states were battling the United States, its NATO allies, and others in what is now known as the Cold War. It was given that name due to the fact that there was no large-scale fighting directly between the two sides involved in the conflict. And as we know from any early James Bond story, espionage was a big part of the Cold War. Each side attempted to learn as much information as they could about what the other side was doing, trying to gain any advantage no matter how small. One of the most bizarre attempts to do this was something known as Operation Acoustic Kitty. The story goes that a branch of America's Central Intelligence Agency, known as the CIA, called the Directorate of Science and Technology, had plans to listen in on the Kremlin and Soviet embassies. They would do this by using ordinary house cats as listening devices. The idea was to implant a cat with a microphone and radio transmitter and let it loose in the Soviet embassy. Apparently, there was an important man in the embassy who was known to let cats roam freely around. According to Spycraft, the secret history of the CIA's spy tech, an adult gray-and-white female cat was selected as the first prototype. We don't know the cat's name, as its true identity has never been divulged. A veterinarian surgeon put the poor kitty through an hour-long operation in which it was slid open and electronic devices were stuffed inside. According to a short documentary on the Military Channel, a power pack and transmitter were placed in the cat's abdomen, a microphone in the ear canal, and an antenna ran across its spine. Mental Floss claims that a three-quarter inch long transmitter was embedded in the base of the cat's skull. The first mission for our cat agent was that she was going to be sent across the street to spy on two men parked outside a Soviet compound on Wisconsin Avenue in Washington, D.C. According to former CIA director Victor Marchetti, they took it out to a park bench and said, Listen to those two guys. Don't listen to anything else. Not the birds, no cat or dog, just those two guys. And if Marchetti was accurate, these are two grown men trying to tell a cat what to do. 
But unfortunately and sadly, the feline didn't make it. As soon as it got on the road, it was struck and killed by a taxi. There they were, sitting in the van, Marchetti recalled, and the cat was dead. This story was disputed, however, in 2013 by Robert Wallace, a former director of the CIA's Office of Technical Services. He doesn't dispute that the CIA was trying to make cats spies. He disputes the death of the kitty. He said the project was abandoned due to the difficulties of training a cat to behave as required. And the equipment was taken out of the cat, the cat was re-sewn for a second time, and lived a long and happy life afterwards. <laughs> sure, Robert, whatever you say. The CAA continued with the Acoustic Kitty program until 1967 when it was finally canceled, saying it would not be practical to continue training cats as spies. A memo that was declassified in 2001 said, The environmental and security factors in using this technique in a real foreign situation forces us to conclude that for our intelligence purposes, it would not be practical. Yeah, you think? I think any cat owner could have told that to the CIA. Yet it took almost five years and between 15 and 25 million dollars for a government agency to figure that one out. And how many kittens lost their lives? How many? I don't think we'll ever know. In the book Frankenstein's Cat, Cuddling Up to the Biotech's Brave New Beast by Emily Ains, she writes, The problem with cats is they are not especially trainable. They don't have the same deep-seated desire to please a human master that dogs do, and the agency's robo-cat didn't seem terribly interested in national security. The idea behind Acoustikitty was to develop an audio device that could function despite extraneous noises. The cat that was used for the experiment um, had to be cut open and have a... Uh, power pack placed inside its uh, abdomen, uh, wires were run up to its ear, to its cochlea, wires to its brain to determine when it was hungry or sexually aroused, and wires to override uh, these urges. Before I begin, I want to say something that needs to be said. His name is not Smokey the Bear. Yeah, I know there was a song in the 50s called Smokey the Bear. But the actual mascot's name is Smokey Bear. If you're going to call him Smokey the Bear, then why not call me Jeffrey the Kelly? You might be thinking that Smokey the Bear was just a cartoon mascot created by the National Park Service in order to protect forests from fire. And in a way, you're right. Well, the truth is, there was a living Smokey Bear that was a famous celebrity for 26 years. The story of Smokey the Bear starts in the early days of World War II. You see, most of the qualified firefighters were joining the armed forces to go fight the enemy, and many feared the consequences of a major fire in some of the United States' vast forests. This was heightened with the events of February 1942. That's when a Japanese submarine appeared off the coast of California and fired on coastal targets near Santa Barbara, California. The fear was that another attack such as this might set the national forests on fire. Also, the Japanese military had a wildfire strategy late in the war. 
from November 1944 to April 1945, they launched some 9,000 fire balloons into the jet stream. These were sort of blimp-looking contraptions that would float over the ocean and then drop bombs on the U.S. These could easily start our national forests ablaze. When a study pointed out that 9 out of 10 forest fires were preventable, the United States Forest Service began a campaign to educate the public on what they could do to prevent forest fires. Shortly after Walt Disney's fifth full-length feature animated motion picture, Bambi, premiered in New York City, Walt Disney allowed his characters to appear in fire prevention public service ads, but only for a year. After that was over, the decision was made to create a new symbol for the campaign, and since Bambi and her friends worked so well, they figured another animal was the key. Artist Albert Staley created a poster with a bear wearing blue jeans and a ranger's hat, putting out a campfire with a bucket of water. He was named Smokey after Smokey Joe Martin, a New York City fire department hero who suffered burns and blindness during a bold 1922 rescue. Underneath the drawing of the bear were the words, Smokey says, care will prevent 9 out of 10 forest fires. In 1944, forest server worker Rudy Wendellin created the look of Smokey the Bear that we all know today. He became the full-time campaign artist until he retired in 1973. The Smokey Bear campaign was a huge success, and in 1947, the slogan associated with Smokey the Bear for more than five decades was finally coined. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. In the spring of 1950, a huge wildfire, most likely started by careless humans, burned 17,000 acres in the Lincoln National Forest in the Capitan Mountains of New Mexico. A group of firefighters became trapped when the winds shifted and it looked like they might not make it out alive. The men buried themselves in the earth of a recent landslide and were able to survive the fire. Once the fire had passed, they got up and began to walk back when they heard a faint sound, something like a whimpering child. They found an American black bear three-month-old cub who, in an effort to escape the blaze, climbed up a tree. Unfortunately, his paws and hind legs were badly burnt. Depending on whose version of the story you read, either Game Warden Ray Bell or a group of soldiers from Fort Bliss, Texas, who had come to help fight the fire, rescued the bear. Originally, he was named Hotfoot Teddy, but soon after he was renamed Smokey after the mascot. Now there seems to be some controversy over who nursed the cub bear back to health. According to a New York Times obituary for Homer C. Pickens, the assistant director of the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish, he kept the cub at his home for a while and nursed it back to health. According to other records, including a story in Life magazine, New Mexico Department of Game and Fish ranger Ray Bell took him to Santa Fe where he, his wife, and their children, Don and Judy, cared for the cub. But whoever did it, the story of the living Smokey Bear quickly became national news, and the bear quickly became a big celebrity. He soon had a permanent home at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C., when he arrived in Washington, he was greeted by several hundred spectators, including members of the Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, photographers, and the media. He lived for 26 years at the National Zoo, 
During that time, he received millions of visitors as well as 13,000 letters addressed to him per week. In 1964, the United States Postal Service gave him his own zip code, 20252. He developed a love for peanut butter sandwiches in addition to his daily diet of bluefish and trout. Upon his death on November 9, 1976, Smokey's remains returned to Capitan, New Mexico, and he is buried in what is now the Smokey Bear Historical Park. The plaque on his grave reads, This is the resting place of the first living Smokey Bear, the living symbol of wildfire protection and wildlife conservation. Yes, trees are everybody's friends. So the next time you're visiting your friends, the trees, make sure you crush out cigarettes. Make sure you drown out campfires. Remember, only you can prevent forest fires. I could give this story two names. The first, it seemed like a good idea at the time, or this is what you get when you let the internet decide. You see, in 2014, the United Kingdom government announced a new £200 million Arctic Explorer ship for the British Antarctic Survey, an advanced floating research vessel. The National Environmental Research Council, or NERC, thought it would be a good idea, and good publicity, to use the internet to give it a name. The only rule was, previous names would not be eligible. The new ship, which is scheduled to be finished in 2019, is to be a great research vessel, fully equipped with the latest instrumentation for the purposes of carrying out research in polar regions. It would have an improved icebreaking capability with greater endurance over existing polar research vessels, but also it would serve as a logistic support vessel for the British Antarctic Survey teams in inshore locations. On April 16, 2014, a website was set up to take suggestions for a name. Allison Robertson of the NERC said the organization was thrilled with the enthusiasm and creativity of the naming process. She said, We've got thousands of suggestions made on the website since we've officially launched. Many of them reflect the importance of the ship's scientific role by celebrating great British explorers and scientists. Others are more unusual, but we're pleased that people are embracing the idea in the spirit of fun. Many people took the poll seriously, but others, in the spirit of having fun, got creative with such names as I like big boats and I cannot lie, Odomus Prime, Big Metal Floaty Thingy Thing, It's Bloody Cold Here, Clifford the Big Red Boat, Ice Ice Baby, and of course, Not the Titanic. A BBC radio personality, James Hand, thought some of the names were pretty funny, so he decided, as a joke, to offer his own suggestion. He suggested Bodie McBoatface. Soon after his suggestion, he began getting tweets from people he didn't know saying how much they liked the suggestion. Then he got a tweet letting him know that Bodie McBoatface was leading by 500 votes. When the website crashed a few days later, it was leading by 8,000 votes. Yes, the website was so overwhelmed with votes for Bodie McBoatface that it crashed. James Hand contacted people behind the scenes to apologize. He said in an interview, This actually is nothing to do with me. He said, 
I made the suggestion, but the storm that has been created, it's got legs of its own. I just feel it's a very British thing, which a lot of people have pointed out. Mr. Han said, when you submit them, you have to submit a reason, and I actually put, it's a brilliant name, which I stand by. I tweeted the organizers and said, I'm terribly sorry. A lot of people have replied to me and said, that's the most British thing ever. When the polls closed, his suggestion received 124,109 votes, four times more than the second place suggestion, the RRS Poppy Maya, named after a 16-month-old girl with incurable cancer. Science Minister Joe Johnson did not see the humor. He said... The new Royal Research ship will be sailing into the world's iciest waters to address global challenges that affect the lives of hundreds of millions of people, including global warming, the melting of polar ice, and the rising sea levels. Then he added, That's why we want a name that lasts longer than a social media news cycle and reflects the serious nature of the science it'll be doing. There are many excellent suggestions among the 7,000 names put forward by the members of the public, and we'll be making a decision on to which one we should put forward to the royal warrant when we've had a chance to review them all. So in the end, the ship was named the RRS Sir David Attenborough, after the famed broadcaster and naturalists. As a compromise, a remotely operated underwater research vessel was given the name Bodie McBoatface. McBoatface will travel to some of the deepest and coldest ocean waters on the Earth. The United Kingdom's National Oceanography Center has designed a cartoon version of Bodie McBoatface to help teach children about marine research. According to The Guardian, a full-size inflatable version of the submersible will travel to events across the country. In some ways, a lot of good came out of this. I mean, a lot of people didn't even know what the Natural Environmental Research Council was before this contest. And they are using Bodie McBoatface to help teach children, yet I still feel uneasy about the whole thing. It still depresses me a little to know that true democracy failed. Seems like it's just another example of the government not following the wishes of the people. Construction begins this morning on a $200 million research ship that many believe should have been, should have been called Boaty McBoakface. This is right up Sharon Street. Instead, the vessel is being named after Sir David Attenborough, who joins us live from Birkenhead, where he's about to lay the centre beam. Yeah. Now, well, does a little part of you, Sir David, actually miss the fact that we didn't call it Boaty McBoakface? I mean, does your sense of humour <laughs> extend that far? <laughs> Uh, well, I leave that to others, but, but the, the name actually is going to be preserved on one of the submersibles which actually going to be operating from this, uh, the research ship when it's built. So it, there will be a, uh, a, a BAS or whatever the correct initials are, boat face or boaty or something of that sort, or <laughs> perpetuated. So, to... I just wanted to get you to say boaty my boat face, really. It just made me laugh. Has anybody got a match? Thanks. Now I can light an old goal and listen to the sad sack. So to wrap up each story, don't start forest fires, cats don't make quality spies, and I'm glad I didn't use the internet to name my podcast. Nothing more really needs to be said. Now as I was working on the show, I saw a commercial for some new David Attenborough TV show. 
that's something to do with animals that produce their own illumination, that type of thing. Anyway, I thought, if a ship that should have been called Bodie McBoatface is being called the Sir David Attenborough, couldn't we start calling him Bodie McBoatface? Might be humorous. But you know, today's episode shows that any idea, no matter how small, can make for an interesting topic. I bet there's a lot of you out there who have been wondering for years about something but are too lazy to research it yourself. Come on, don't lie to me. You're lazy. Anyway, the thing you're wondering about? Ask me. I'll do the research. That's what I do. I'm at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. All of you out there should try to be like Rebecca and send me your ideas. Now how about the ending credits? Guess what? It's time for me to talk about our Patreon page. It could really use some love. Just go to psycon.fm, that's C-S-I-C-O-N dot F-M. Just look for the Patreon link at the top. Every dollar helps. And of course, a sincere thank you to all of you who already support the network. And speaking of Psycon, why not go over to our website and check out a few of our other shows? You'll find an amazing amount of geek culture. Stuff like the History Files, Who's Who, Pint Notes, Geek Days, The Mouseketeers, and so, so many more. Just visit Psycon.fm. You know, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com for any reason. If you want to complain or say hi or leave me a suggestion, that's the place to go. I answer every email. You can also follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word, and I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. Story ideas are always welcome and usually needed. If you want to support the show but you don't have the coin, and believe me, I understand, then just go over to iTunes and leave a review, some stars, that type of thing. That really helps the show. And remember, links to all the sources that I use to write today's story can be found at Psycon's Coffee with Jeff page. I'd like to thank Brecky Tomlinson for having this podcast on the Psycon Network, Rebecca for suggesting today's topic, my wife of 33 years for being my wife of 33 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickard for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on Facebook and Twitter. You know who you are, and you have a special place in my heart. I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. I once knew a man who used to drink his coffee black. He once tried it with some cream. Didn't like it, now he never looks back Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Coffee with Jeff Coffee, coffee with Jeff Met a girl from Beantown Jeff was always hanging around She drank tea, but that was okay she was the dawn of Jeff's new day. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.
coffee, more coffee with Jeff. Years go by and life's filled with change. Sometimes your plans get rearranged. He's seen it all and he's weathered it too. So Jeff wants to have some coffee with you. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee.